You mean visually, right? Because that is me. What is up, everybody? Thank you all for joining us on the latest Gen X music show. And uh, before I get started, I'd like to talk to you about Blanchard Family Wines, located between 18th and 19th and Blake and Wazee, beautiful lower downtown Denver, Colorado, just a couple blocks away from Coors Field, right in the middle of the dairy block. Uh, social distancing is all the rage right now, and uh, as if it's a fad, but this is something that's just absolutely happening to us right now. So uh, if you want to just order some wine, go to bfwdenver.com, get yourself on my recommendation, the 2017 Cabernet. It is really good. I got a bottle of that myself uh, a couple weeks ago and it's just sitting there ready for a, ready for a special occasion. Um, but they also have all every other kind of wine that you would really want. And uh, of course, right now it's harder to get out and just, uh, and you know, just experience the whole uh, wine tasting thing out because let's face it, no one can really go out right now. but. You could still order some bottles and do a virtual wine tasting, which is really, really uh, popular. So I would get in on it now. Go to bfwdenver.com and uh, check it out. See if you can schedule an appointment. Uh, they are on Facebook and Instagram under Blanchard Family Wines. Once again, they're located between 18th and 19th and Blake and Boisee in beautiful lower downtown Denver, Colorado. Just a couple blocks away from Coors Field, right in the middle of the dairy block. When you go in, tell them Jeff Morton from CSG Podcast sent you there. All right, folks, this is another Gen X music show, a.k.a. Amorphous Blob. And uh, we are going to uh, – let me introduce you to the two of, the, uh, of my three uh, co-hosts coming to you all the way from not New Mexico, a man who uh, is uh, currently uh, deep, deep in the allergen-free game. I would like to <laughs> introduce you to my friend, Pat. Hello, Pat Guerin. Yeah, Morty. Thanks so much. What a what an introduction. He's deep, deep in that origin for you. He's deep in it. <laughs> um, also, coming to you from not his mother's basement, but his own basement, um, a uh, place that has both crafting tables and tanning beds. My friend Joe. How are you, Joe? Hi. Good. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy. Everyone. Well, happy post Thanksgiving to everyone. Hope everyone. Uh, didn't like do something stupid and go see like family out of state. I hope everyone stayed, yeah. uh, stayed home and uh, didn't risk uh, uh, um, illness. So I hope everyone did that. Uh, so today's subject is about basically what are the, we kind of all picked out best uh, quote unquote years in music. And, it, and I didn't go rock music. I just went music in general because, you know, music has a lot of different facets to it. And uh, I think that uh, we all have different de definitions about what is a good too. So this is a purely subjective list, obviously. So um, I'm, I'm the kind of the one who thought of this because I thought of a, a specific year and we were kind of talking about it in our group chat. And I think that that kind of is where from whence this sprang, um, you know, <laughs> Mr. Mr. Uh, definition here, Pat. Um, <laughs> we, uh, when you approached this whole uh, subject, what was your mindset? What, how did you uh, look at uh, uh, approaching this as far as, as, far as years and in, in music? Um, well, I looked at it um, from the notion of, you know, where was a time where there was like an earthquake in music that changed what came after it? And um, I think that I really thought a lot about this and it's so hard to 
put things down it's like a year you know because like oh this year there was this great album and then there's also like this like steam garbage which was in the, <laughs> you know the, the top the top of the chart so it's like how do you wait you know what you're um, really deserves to be recognized. And uh, so I think that's like the, as always, the long-winded uh, explanation of a very broad subject that <laughs> I think we'll have some fun chatting about. Oh, yeah. Now, now Joe, when you, when you uh, were looking at this, and, and we've been stewing on this particular subject for several weeks now, but when you, when you uh, were looking at your selection, is there a, like, a, uh, like a specific criteria you used? Because like I said, when I was in the introduction, it's kind of like, it's, it's a really subjective thing because music is, <laughs> is in its inherently subjective. But was there a criterion you used to kind of uh, guide you through selecting a year? Um, actually, yeah, you say subjective and which actually most of our podcasts are enforceable by law. I don't know if you knew that, but, but <laughs> yes. our the things we've said in them are actually, Those are rules. Yeah, right. they're, um, but no, for me, I like what, uh, Pat said about, uh, looking at earthquake music. That's kind of, that's kind of how I feel about my pick of year. Um, was it like a transitional period too? You know, like when, when, when music goes from from this to this kind of thing. And the year I picked definitely is one of those. It's actually the last year where music, like especially rock and roll was, was something. And then afterwards it was very, very much something different. So. Well, it is, and it is, it is, it's one of those things where I think uh, a transitional year is, uh, tends to have, or at least a, there's a transition periods in music usually take, a couple years but there's mm -hmm. some there's sometimes there's that one year where everyone just kind of hits it out of the park and yeah. uh, uh my year was one of those years and uh i believe um my year is the most uh the biggest i guess one of the last big years in quote rock music uh is the one that i chose so and it's um, a pretty unique call i think on your part too i don't think a lot of people would have thought of it yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, uh, it, uh, how about we start with you, Mister uh, Mister Joe? Uh, what? Just uh, go to your year, and what? Uh, what do you think is going to be your lead off, and how? How? Just kind of explain your uh, the your choice in year, and how uh, it, how impactful it was in the landscape of music. Okay. Yeah, mine is uh, nineteen seventy five, and a lot of that was uh, the seventies. Or my favorite decade of music, right? Of all time. There's not even a, like a, not even a close second, really. Um, and I picked '75 mostly because it's that midpoint of the decade, obviously. And it was also the the year before the punk explosion, you know. So it's kind of right. the end of what rock and roll, like I said before, was before, and what it would be after that. Right. So it's kind of that perfect midpoint. Um, the year starts off, for instance, January. Blood on the Tracks, not a punk example, but one about like maybe Bob Dylan's best album right. comes out January 1975. That's what we're starting the year off with, right? You know, um, and there's very few. I'm looking through my little list here, my notes of the whole year, and there's literally every month an album, like a, a defining album of like a group or an artist every month. And I don't remember the last time that happened. I bet I bet there's a lot of years in the 70s where you could look at that year and go, oh, okay, every month of the year something great came out. Again, that's why I love the 70s so much as far as the, as a decade of music but 75 is just another perfect example yeah is it is it now since 1975 i i think we 
we can say is probably the high point of what the ethos was of the 70s was building to because i've mm. always i've always felt that 76 to 80 or at least 79 was mm. uh four years or three three years and it was mostly just like it was almost in a half a decade of uh, music trying to find itself again and then mm. re and then it was the longest period of that, I think, in, if we're going to go from the rock era. And mm. 75 to me, and, and, and this is why I like your choice of that year, is that, that that year seems to be a culmination of many years of great. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's and like I, when arena, arena rock re reached its most bloated state, you know, like right, rock, right. rock and stuff. We're right. talking like 20-minute epics about, like, you know, gnomes and shit. Right. Yes. You know? Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> So, so it, you know, within the, you know, 75, you also have, um, well, by 75, most of the prog rock bands had died out. Um, I guess I that's think, true for the most part. I mean, as far uh, as recording. Goes, yeah, yeah. I think the only ones left were still um, uh, Yes and uh, uh, ELP were the only. Yeah, I, say, I thought ELP would be one of them. Yeah. yeah. They, were still whatnot, so. they had even into the late 70s. Right. And yeah. I think I think I think we we come into a, a, a period of where everything just reaches a crescendo. Um, and uh, what are some of the albums that you um, that you have, like other than Blood on the Tracks? I mean, are oh, there any, wow. other, any other albums that really, really stand out to you and are part of your own collection? Oh, yeah. Tons of them. Um, Physical Graffiti, my favorite Zeppelin album, came out in February of 75. Um, one of the biggest ones, and I actually capitalized it, one of my favorite albums of all time, uh, Willie Nelson's Redheaded Stranger came yes. out that year also. One of his, I think, considered still to be maybe his best album. Um, Is it? I mean, yeah, I think by a lot of people would consider that. Um, uh, Fleetwood Mac self-titled album, the first Lindsey Buckingham, Stevie Nicks album came out that year. Uh, Wish You Were Here, obviously not the highlight of Pink Floyd's career that The Dark Side of the Moon was, but yeah, but album. it's still it, it, I consider that to be part of your their 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 bigger pantheon of music though. Oh, of their of their best years by yeah. far. Um, a night at the opera came out that year. Queen. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, my favorite Emmylou Harris album, Elite Hotel, came out that year. So yeah, I mean it's just like whether it's rock or country or or whatever, it's it's yeah, it's all over the place. And and the and that was the start of what about the mid seventies was the start of outlaw country, right? Yeah, that would have been, I think Redhead Stranger probably would be like the the zero, you know, the year zero as far as that goes. Yeah, wouldn't I, I mean I mean Pat, had you heard a lot of the uh the the country albums uh like like would you would call them out, out outlaw country I guess at that time because uh because sure, Willie Nelson yeah. really is the is the harbinger of all of that and then it kind of oh, yeah. expanded from there. Oh, no doubt. I mean, I love Willie Nelson, and I, uh, my earliest exposure to music and where I was growing up and such was country music, and mm -hmm. uh, and so of, I'm actually more inclined to remember like being young and learning about somebody like um, Willie Nelson than somebody about Led Zeppelin because I didn't end up really finding yeah. out about them until much later, like when I had to be deliberative about the music that I um, was influenced by and pursued. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. And it's and it's an interesting kind of uh, leap, jumping off point because, as you said, punk. Now, when when we talk about punk, there were all different facets of what punk was, and 
British punk really was the thing that, I mean, if you're talking about like a lot of British bands had a great run up until the mid seventies and then they were kind of, uh, uh, went through their big transition due to the following year with punk. But up until 75, uh, you would say that there was mostly the charts were dominated by British bands. Um, Oh yeah. British rock bands. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Like I said, like, um, it was, you know, fly by night came out that year also, you know, Mm -hmm. the first Neil Rush album, well, Canadian in that sense, but you know, they're, they're kind of British. (laughs) They're like like the bastard twin of British, I guess. I don't know. Um, But no, yeah, like Zeppelin, like I said, Zeppelin and, uh, but also like Aerosmith put out um, Toys in the Attic that year too, you know, so like, you know, as far as that hard rock kind of reached its peak around that time. Was it like, you would would consider uh, Toys in the Attic and Rocks, which is the following year to be the one, the one A and one B of, uh, of uh, Aerosmith's catalog? And by far the peak, they never got any better than those two albums, you know, there was only downhill after Rocks, so yeah. Well, then you sure. see, you see, Stephen the, is a mustachioed, uh, uh, fame chasing uh, whore. Uh, that yeah, you, isn't he on American Idol? Like, I think when you, when you, you lost all credibility when you're an American Idol judge, as far as I'm concerned. You know, it's like, <laughs> give me a break. That's about uh, as far from rock and roll as you can get. Was there any other uh, standout country uh, albums in '75 other than Redheaded Stepchild and uh, or uh, Head Stranger? Stranger, redheaded stranger. Real uh, nice, Marty. Real that, nice. That uh, Elite Hotel were the real ones that jumped out of me. But actually, uh, Emily Harris's first al- solo album came out that year. I've just never been as fond of it. You know, um, what is it? Pieces of the Sky. Is it Pieces okay. of the Sky? Yeah. Oh, by Boulder to Birmingham. Yeah, I've just never been as big of a fan of that album as Elite Hotel. Well, Elite. I think Elite Hotel is what uh, gets uh, her to participate with Bob Dylan, right? In the uh, uh, recording of, Desi- of Desire the following year, if I, if I remember correctly, yeah. in hearing that. Probably. And, yeah. Uh, wanting to, I mean, Emmylou Harris has got a great voice. And oh, amazing voice. A haunting country voice. Mm-hmm. She's one of those people, it's kind of like Willie Nelson, the people who aren't even country fans. And it's great that Magnus isn't here to disagree with me. <laughs> uh, that even people who don't like country are like, oh, yeah, they're good. <laughs> you know, like they're well, country, but they're not, you know. They're not so take, Yeah, exactly. You take good songwriting mm-hmm. and, you know, good artistic performance, which mm-hmm. you get every time from Willie Nelson and Emmylou Harris and countless yeah. others. It, it sort of defies genre. I mean, yeah. when you say country music, yes, there's some people that are thinking George Jones and Merle Haggard. And then there's some people that are thinking like Brad Paisley and uh, um, Carrie Underwood or something, you know, speaking yeah, of American Idol. people at all. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, so, I mean, I, I always like to point out, because a lot of the music that I like definitely borders on to some of the more, could be, you know, played on country radio type mm. artists. But oh, yeah. um, the the vast difference between, you know, pop country and uh, and so, and country music that's, you know, driven by great songwriting and, um, you know, guitar oh, yeah. playing and artistry. Yeah. On that note, I've been There's listening a to uh, more Jason Isbell lately. You'll appreciate his newest one and uh, his first one, actually, between the between the two of of his awesome. uh, other great. I recommend uh, him to everyone. Yes, yes, it is. So, yeah, it's true. It's it true. popular guy going back to 1960 when he wrote crazy and that was not the case at all 
Uh, oh, no. He really muddled along and struggled until about 73 when he started, like, really created by himself the outlaw country uh, genre of music. And, uh, and really, as you point out rightfully, Joe, in 75, he reached his arguably its peak with uh, Redheaded Stranger. Um, yeah. As, a, as, a, as an actual performing artist, because, yeah, he'd written so many songs for so many people. You know, and his yeah, his early years are are pretty um, aren't really as well known. He had some great songs even uh, in the '60s, actually, but uh, they're not as well known as as the stuff he started putting out in the '70s. Because I think even before he had moved to Columbia to do Redheaded Stranger, and I believe before I want to say before I may be wrong, before that he was on Atlantic and did a really couple of really great albums, uh, Shotgun Willie, um, and uh, what's the name of Phases and Stages? I think is the name of the album. If I remember correctly, but anyways, I digress. Yeah. Um, and uh, it, it, it's one of those, it's one of those great, great, um, uh, just effort, years in rock and I, and I, and I did not rock, but in, you know, just in music in general. And that was such a, that was a great, a great choice there, Joe. Oh, thank you. Good, good, good job there. Into it. And I was like, not only a perfect choice, but a perfect choice for you. Yeah. So well yeah. Done. If it's me. Yeah, exactly. I'm very interested to know what Pat's choice is because we have not discussed with Pat any of this. Up until today, so yes, we have not. In fact, we have uh, uh, it's, we have been. If we, you will forgive us, we've been a bit scattershot on the on the on the uh, show lately, just because of oh yeah different uh, circumstances. But we kind of planned this out like over a month ago, and then uh, just the collision circumstances kind of came together for mm -hmm. us to, to be doing it. So we really haven't talked to Pat about about what his job yeah. is. So this is a surprise to all of us whatever yeah. you're using today. So uh, we'll, uh, <laughs> after a whole, uh, the, the, we'll take a break and then afterwards I'll do a DraftKings read and uh, uh, we will find out what uh, Pat's choice is. Now, uh, Pat, I don't know if you know this, but uh, we are sponsored by DraftKings, America's top-rated sportsbook app. Uh, are, are I you do aware? know about this. Okay, good. Uh, so have you had I any... I learned about it from you. Oh, yes. I learned it by watching you. Um, <laughs> um, so, uh, have you had any any good experiences recently uh, with uh, betting on uh, pro sports? I know you're a big fan of the uh, of the live betting. The live betting, yeah. My favorite thing about the live betting is a lot of times I'll be like, "Hey, the game's starting at 11. I gotta I gotta keep some wagers in, you know." And invariably. I get distracted and uh, I don't get those wagers in and then the game start and I'm always like, Oh, good thing. I didn't take, you know, the, the Steelers at minus seven because they're already losing by seven, but therein lies your opportunity. You can just pull it up on the DraftKings app on your phone and look at what the live line is, which now is probably adjusted well under seven. And so you have an opportunity to uh, get in on some action at a better line after you saw something happen with your own eyes, you know? Uh, and also uh, my other favorite, as I've mentioned before, is you can literally watch a game and wager on whether the next play will be a run or a pass, or you can go like, you know, real long, real long odds on like an interception, things like that. So uh, enhances uh, the, the game watching experience, uh, like as if you're in Vegas, Plus, even more user friendly with live betting and uh, and live lines. Well, uh, that, that's a you're not going to get any better endorsement of uh, DraftKings <laughs> than what uh, Mr. Mr. Garen just gave you. Uh, it's holiday season. Uh, holiday season is in full swing, and with the professional and collegiate football seasons entering the playoff push, DraftKings Sportsbook, America's top-rated sportsbook app, 
uh, wants to put you in the center of the action. If you haven't tried it yet, head on over to the App Store now because you won't want to miss the DraftKings, what DraftKings Sportsbook has to offer. To celebrate Sunday's action, DraftKings is ensuring all new users are covered up to $100. That's right. You bet. They cover with risk-free Sunday betting uh, on all of Sunday's action. Don't miss out on Sunday night's pivotal matchup between bitter divisional rivals. So get in on all the action now. I'm The last two reads I've done of this have been so bad. Um, download the top-rated DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use promo code MHS when you sign up so you, so you can get you to get this can't risk, can't miss offer. The love of God. Uh, DraftKings Sportsbook is uh, insuring all your Sunday bets up to $100. That's right. New customers can bet this Sunday, risk-free, up, uh, up to $100 when you use promo code MHS during sign-up for a limited time only at DraftKings Sportsbook. Must be 21 or older. Must be physically located in Colorado. Risk-free co uh, coverage paid out on site credits. Uh, restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com slash sportsbook for details. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-522-4700. All right, we are back after I struggled my way through another ad read. He texts um, me that number. <laughs> you just need to relax, man. <laughs> uh, all righty. So, uh, Pat, we are up to your your year selection, and I'm I'm really curious uh, that both Joe and I are really curious to see what you chose. Well, prepare to get disappointed, boys, because. What I, what I am, uh, first of all, Morty, as you mentioned, we had some discussion about other choices and your choice was like right, uh, right in line with where I was thinking about originally. And as I kind of just toiled with this, I mean, it took me a long time to, to think about this. I looked through all these different years and a lot of times, like I said, like, oh, there might've been a couple of great albums that year, but then there were other great albums a few years later that weren't like, you know, the earthquake that I described. Right. And so um, when I started thinking about a year that did create an earthquake for music, um, I th and, and that it was the year that has led to like the way in which we interact and consume music today was in 1999 when Napster became a part of the right. music scene and yeah. changed the trajectory of record companies, of artists, of live wow. shows, even of MTV. I mean, that was like the, the, the end kind of, of that era where MTV could launch like a fabricated boy band or a Britney Spears, Christina Aguilera type thing. Mm -hmm. And everybody would consume it, you know, on TRL live from Times Square. And as Napster started come, coming along, especially amongst college students and, you know, a lot of culture and a lot of um, musical um, progress happens amongst that young, like, college age kids you know seeing bands on campus or or going to concerts or being in bands or whatever that happens to be and you, you started to see them flood the internet with the desire to get access to not just like free music as became the talking point in that year because there were lawsuits from you know many big time um artists you know metallica chiefly oh, yeah. that they were being that they were being deprived by this new concept right. but what was being demonstrated was is that people were were willing to do do whatever it took to find have access and convenience and mm -hmm. once that got realized 
in the ensuing years, you started to see the iTunes store, which was like the first like, you know, move into like full widespread streaming and music anywhere because with it came the iPhone and the smartphones. And one of the chief functionalities of those were to replace the sort of clunky MP3 players that were emerging out of that era of Napster and downloading and burning CDs and then having a digital way in which to move it. So I, you know, I posit that, you know, with, with Napster in 1999 and the, when where music was, and then how it shifted over the next 21 years, um, is the defining characteristic of music in my lifetime. And the fact that, um, there are artists now that can record and produce their songs on their iPad and upload it to iTunes and uh, and have it streamed and Mm -hmm. and sold and all kinds of things. So, you know, it's changed the breadth of uh, music that's available. And as a result, the barrier to entry has gotten, easier um and you didn't have to you know even in our era when we knew guys in the 90s that were trying to do music you know there was like well, we got to go rent studio time and things like that it's very costly and that was just to get a demo to get to an agent to get to a record company all that was over with and as a result you know we saw you know 20 years of you know different um, avenues of music um, from live shows to um, digital distributions to um, you know YouTube obviously plays a role in this to a certain extent mm-hmm. um, and uh, there you there you have it so um, I you know didn't want to mention the year because also this year was um, one of the worst songs in history Mambo number no. five by Lou <laughs> yeah. um, you know and so whatever credit you get for like Californication by the Chili Peppers coming out that year. Um, it's all lost there. But yeah. the big and the big the the other thing is one of the big songs there. I think it won the Grammy the next year, or whatever. But was with that um, um, Santana and Rob Thomas um, sort of a duet. Oh, yeah. that is like one of the most popular songs I think of all time. It's like got the all time single record or something like that. I could be yeah. incorrect about that. But anyway, that was something else. It was just like a fully manufactured album that every entity, like legacy entity, you know, by that time that would certainly include like MTV, but then also commercial, you know, widespread radio, just pumped that song out all the time. And it was so boilerplate and so sort of like, yeah. um, oh, look, there's this guy that we know from recent years, uh, Rob Thomas. And then there's this guy that, you know, is a virtuoso in guitar and well known for, you know, from the previous generation, they're putting a song together. And that's where music was headed. You know, mm-hmm. Britney Spears and uh, the boy, the Backstreet Boys. Um, and we dodged a bullet by expanding access to music from the, for the consumer and the artist. Yeah, it's true. People didn't have to try it. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great choice. What are you talking about being disappointed? That's a perfect oh, example. No, it doesn't have to be like uh, necessarily something. I mean, certainly 1999 was huge. Obviously, Napster coming in is fundamental to the way the music is now. And uh, you can't you can't get around it. Um, You can't. uh, There was bit torrenting. There was all this stuff that downloading music, sharing, file sharing, all this all this stuff that was really pioneered. Um, and by by Napster and the subsequent uh, lawsuit by Metallica, um, really just just fundamentally reshaped the way we knew it. Because ri- without that, you don't get the iPod, um, you don't get mm-hmm. you know file sharing, and in, in a sense that we got now, we don't have streaming, uh, you don't have any of that. Also in 1999, um, uh, 
a guy, an, an, an artist named Jeff Morton began recording his first album. <laughs> I remember it well. <laughs> We're still looking for the uh, the master tapes of that, actually. Yeah, it's somewhere. It's uh, it's somewhere lost. Thank God. Um, but... <laughs> yeah, but Morty. Um, to your point there, it was some, there was like colleges and universities, their internet systems were getting overwhelmed because all the students were just downloading songs and trading songs on Napster. Mm -hmm. oh, and yeah. uh, and to the point where they started to get banned. And then when Metallica started, you know, filed their lawsuit, they were kind of creating a wedge between themselves and their very fans that were looking for access to these that. things. Yeah. You know, I mean, yes, Metallica was angry, I think, because they had a single that got like leaked and spread around and ended up on the radio and so that they lost that control, you know. And certainly as an artist, you know, you can imagine uh, um, why that would infuriate you to the point of taking it to federal court but you know you also had fans that were like hey we're just trying to get music in the way and we watch want to listen to it and uh and let's evolve you know and, and because the industry was not going to get there on its own and so it created that wedge between those um those fans and then those very artists you know yeah, and but, as time went on you did you know the newer artists that started to emerge embraced it and then the, you know the legacy artists did as well when you think about like you know the beatles finally ending up on apple music or mm. you know whoever it happens to be that's been held out um as like a, a late adopter or late um participant there, in the there are guys that have only done it in the last couple of years like i think it's only been in the last two years you could get any of neil young's albums on apple music yeah like, only in the I last right, like, year or two. Uh, Tool, I think, still. Aren't they still hold out? Are they on Apple Music now? Or? I've never they, searched uh, for them. I, know, <laughs> I need to. I, I know they were before. So, we but we they, now they'd be one of the last holdouts. We would need our friend uh, Phil to find that out for us. So <laughs> but I don't. I don't, oh, I don't need <laughs> get him on the blower. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's a, it's a, such a seminal, and, and, and I like the outside-the-box thinking on this, Pat, because it's, mm -hmm. it is more of a, because the, there was a lot of shit that came out in 1999, a lot of shit. Uh, in fact, the entire, came out I would say from 98 to night to 2001, too, there was a lot of just hot garbage, but there was... Oh, yeah. you, know, um, you know, Springsteen released The Rising in, you know, 2002, but I mean, there was, there was just a lot of garbage on that time. I mean, you, I always have to add the caveat when, when we talk about things like that. And I totally agree with everything you just said. But it's also that like when the way that we were consuming music was also changing. Like we were like rejecting a lot of that late 90s stuff anyway, because that was for, a gen, you know, people five years younger than us. And they were yeah. eating that shit up at the time. And, um, and that was what was driving music, you know, generally. But then we re-exerted... Re or reasserted, I guess, um, more influenced by being the early adopters of the digital platforms of music and the way in which they could be had. I mean, I used to spend thousands of hours on Napster and later LimeWire and Kaza and all these sorts of Me platforms too, searching for live shows, you know? I was looking mm -hmm. for like, you know, live shows of bands that I had seen live or try to get get the concert copy yeah. or, um, you know, that there, there were bands that every show is, you know, new and different with covers and all that. And you're just trying to compile them like you used to trade tapes. And now you could just sit in your house and do it. And, yeah. uh, you know, I mean, I still have, a lot of uh, music that I cherish that I was acquired by like deep diving in the early platforms of um, file sharing. I have a pretty long list of artists I discovered via like, cause uh, like I remember the first Tom Waits I ever heard was through them. Uh, was Amy, Amy Mann, Massive Attack. There's just like a ton of artists that yeah. later on I went out and bought all the albums. So 
I guess I'm sort of forgiven for the piracy element of it because I loved them so much. I was like, oh, I got to have all this. So, you know, and that. that's such a brilliant point, Joe. And I, I mean, I think that was a lot of the, um, the thought process, even at the time was like, you know, I might get a concert that another, you know, that a band that I follow and really love performed in Milwaukee five years yeah. ago, but yeah. I've also never missed a concert of them in my town, you know, yeah. and I always buy a concert t-shirt and I always, I mean, I've, yeah. personally for a long time, I always made sure to like, you know, I like to go to the CD store and buy the CD, even yeah. though I would also be having it on iTunes or whatever. Um, and there was a lot of that. So, yeah. you know, overall you had, you were able to have that reset of the way people interacted with their music to the point where now during like, especially during this pandemic time, if you're a fan of a certain artist, um, like I love uh, Pete Yorn, um, yeah. he just like gets on Instagram and plays live shows, you know, and oh. he did it for like weeks and weeks at a time. And, and it was just like all requests, no repeats, you know, half an hour, two, three times a week. That was like a new interaction with an artist that was, you know, the sort of child of moving music yeah. into the, the digital and accessible generation. It, did you guys? Do you have a better relationship with the artist? Yeah. Did you guys see Ryan Adams doing that? He would. I, I think. Like, I think when the pandemic first started, like every day, he was putting a new one on. Putting yeah, new and one. then uh, he's disappeared, Joe. He's like not oh. on the internet. He, you know, he's scandal plagued and all this. So he's moved to some monastery somewhere. Well, I, Dude, I don't know. You know, wait it out. Yeah, I, I love Ryan Adams. Well, there was, yeah. there was another uh, file sharing thing that called Nugs, you know, Nugs.net. It's uh, where the artists yeah, would dump, yeah, dump their live shows. And I remember uh, uh, the Black Crows in 2005 huh. would dump, they, they would just put all the recordings of their live shows on Nugs and you could pay, you know, hmm. just a you know, little to get access to this live show. And it was an instant live, you know, it was right there. Um, yeah. And that, a lot of that came I mean, courtesy of uh, of what started in 1999. Oh yeah, totally. Yeah, I mean, I saw a live show of a uh, Ben Queller in Washington D.C. And at the end of the show, they literally burned physical CDs to sell to you. You know, and so you had to wait like you know five ten minutes or whatever oh. it was. Oh, and nice. then later on, you know, um, there would be bands that would. It's just like you know now there's there's several bands where you just like scan the back of your ticket for you know the live the live recording or you know. It's, it's 25 bucks or you know it's a subscription to nugs still still exists and it's still around um and that allowed the um artists to get in on the the business side of it you know they were putting the music out through that platform now and they were being compensated for it um while having somebody you know while partnering with a company that wasn't run through a record label a lot of times yeah that's a good idea that's cool and that, that's the sort of thing that's really good for specifically for um, uh, live shows. I mean, I think that is where file sharing really is um, uh, really at its best because physical copies mm -hmm. of things, um, I still, people, that's why a lot of people have gone to vinyl is because you kind of miss the, the intimacy of having the artwork mm -hmm. and all the stuff that comes with it. And that's why a lot of bands yeah. sell vinyl now because you can't rip it. And, uh, but and part of it too is like, you just, you get the all the experience of having that thing that is you, the artwork but for like live shows man like that you could just get like i okay i'll tell you here's a good example of this uh joe i found the mm -hmm. uh page and plant show that we attended in 1998 uh the, oh wow the, the live show but i was like oh my god but when it, when it was still nickels arena no 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 uh when you and i went to red rocks oh red rocks the red rocks one that's yeah. right i didn't go to, i didn't go I, I didn't go to the first one with you i went to with that one uh 
Magnus, actually. Yeah, uh, <laughs> Magnus and his brother, I think. Yeah, so yeah. Uh, yeah. So anyway, yeah, that's a great. That's a. I'm. I'm. That, I, kudos, Pat. I. Uh, I've been. It's uh, completely not what I was thinking, but it's actually it fig it it figures in better than I think. Uh, because it's a momentous year without having uh, momentous albums. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And that's 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 really good. I, What's I like better, that. you're in uh, movies, actually. Have you seen there's a book out that a guy wrote? I can't remember the author's name. I want to say he works for Entertainment Weekly or one of those magazines. But his whole book is just about what a year in music movies uh, 1999 was. Uh, Interesting. A kind I, of a bubble of, of, of a year in movies. Because the rest of the 90s were crap for movies. You know, it was like, but 99 was like Ooh. Fight Club, The Matrix, being John Malkovich, Magnolia. Seven. Um, and he goes over all those. Yeah, yeah. No, seven came out in '95. But uh, um, um, uh, what was I going to say? Oh, uh, did High Fidelity come out in '99? I don't remember. It's not mentioned in the book, at least not that I recall. I don't okay, think, I think so. it was 2000. It was 2000. Yeah, it's a little later. Um, good job, Pat. I, that's, yeah. You probably win the podcast with. Uh, oh, well. <laughs> so there's always a podcast winner trophy presentation that most people don't listen to. Uh, I think we should start broadcasting it, though. Yes, we should. Oh, yeah. Joe, uh, speaking of, before we get into my selection, did you uh, do your post-podcast research on ACDC? Oh, yeah, I listen to the new album. It's, I, I've been listening to so much more interesting music than what these 70-year-old guys are doing. I, you know, it's just kind of... What I've been listening to actually is just old ACDC. Like I listen to a couple songs of new album, and I'm like, yeah, I'm just gonna listen to some old ACDC because that's more interesting to me. Wow. Yeah, well, that's it's, it's good though. That's uh, music is subjective, and Joe has all the freedom he had to not like it and be wrong. So, um, well, no, I'm not wrong, but whatever. Yeah. Wow. I'm usually right. Show's gone off the rails. <laughs> Okay, well, the, the year that I chose was something that actually started this whole conversation off mm -hmm. with us. And it's just because I just happened to be looking. I don't know what led me into it. And I think I maybe I was thinking about a certain album that we covered already. Um, and I was looking at the year that albums came out and I was like, holy shit. Holy mm -hmm. shit. Holy shit. Look at all these albums. And it just didn't occur to me until like with hindsight, until looking back at it, to think about what a year it was. And it's 1991. Now, a lot of you will look at the 90s and think, ah, grunge, and, you know... Grunge and, definitely is what people think of, yeah. <laughs> and mid-tempo pop songs, you know, the Tal Bachmans of the world were, were popular <laughs> in, uh, in the 90s, so you think, ah, there's a bunch of garbage. But 1991 was an interesting year because it was the, the birth year of, of grunge, mm -hmm. and... Uh, <clears throat> but there was also a a really a seminal point where music was really moving away from uh, what had become mindless pap at the end of the 80s. Like and hair metal. Uh, hair metal and bad, like Tiffany-esque bad pop. And it was and oh, just, yeah. it's just, that's really, it was manufactured, ultra-processed uh, uh, music. Mm -hmm. So I looked at it and just, let me just give you an example of what came out uh, mm -hmm. in. 1991. Obviously, never mind Nirvana. Mm -hmm. uh, Octone Baby. Mm -hmm. uh, Out of Time, REM. Oh, my favorite REM album, personally. Agreed. Uh, Agreed. Metallica, Metallica, which you know, I, I don't like the album, but it, it was their most popular. There's good songs. Yeah. There's good songs on it. Yeah. Uh, Pearl Jam 10. Uh, oh. 
it's a, a brilliant album. Versus is a better album, but I, I, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, Blood Sugar, Sugar, Sex, Magic, uh, oh. Red Hot Chili Peppers, um, Bad Motorfinger, uh, Soundgarden. Yeah. That's yeah. the one with uh, I'm feeling outshined. Um, that one. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Use Your Illusion 1 and 2. Yeah. Um, yeah. Good songs again. There's some good songs. You'll like this one, though. Loveless by My Bloody Valentine. Oh, yeah. Um, let's see. Uh, la, 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 a couple more. Uh, yeah, but it was just, it was just, the weird thing to think about it is um, how that many huge, uh, Green Mind by Dinosaur Jr. came out that year. Oh, yeah. um, no, no, most people don't, uh, point out dinosaur junior albums but uh um well they've been super hipsters too (laughs) super super you've gone super hipster Uh, they're so hipster they became mainstream yeah uh and uh it it is it is something that i think that we when we look back on it thinking like it was a transitory period where Mm. it it was it was starting to move things were starting to move and two of those albums never mind an octung baby were a couple of the uh, uh, immense selling album, absolutely immense. Um, and Octane, yeah, they were band defining albums. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, as 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 Pat Magnus and I said in the YouTube podcast, how many al- how many bands have two masterpiece albums? You know, yeah. let alone one. Yeah. So obviously there is that, but I mean, out of time is is a great REM album. Mm-hmm. Uh, the following year, they released "Automatic for the People," but uh, which people think is better. But I've I've never I've never agreed with that. I've never liked it. Was it. more popular on radio and MTV. Yeah. I mean that's, that's all yeah, these that's things are by that. I mean this. I mean Morty's talking about all these great albums that came out in 1991. I totally agree. But you know that's also when like one of the biggest hits of the year was "Everything I." Do I do, I do it, it for you, you. Oh, by Brian Adams, yeah. and uh, and don't forget everybody dance now by CNC Music Factory. Oh, that's right, everybody dance now. But immortalized oh, by the Simpsons. We do have um, <laughs> everything yeah. that has been immortalized yeah. um, for you, Morty, has, <laughs> yeah. has been done so by the Simpsons. Yeah, true, true, very true. I, I like it when Borat sings that song. Everybody <laughs> dancing now. <laughs> but when you think about it, guys, it's like. That's our lifetime, and that's our wheelhouse. Because I think, I think really, uh, I've had, I have this theory that your attitudes and um, your kind of future with your uh, like knowledge and consumption of music is shaped uh, in your teenage years from about thirteen to like seventeen, right around there. Yeah, it's like everything. It's... Your way forward is going to be completely and almost permanently shaped by the way you yeah. think about music at that then, not your taste. Yeah. But the way you think about music, what well, makes an impact on you? Yeah, at, at yeah, it's, yeah. It, exactly. It's a nostalgia bias. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, when, when I heard this for the first time, it was so new and so amazing, and it made me feel, you know, great. I'm going to try to pursue that feeling ever again, and then always, 
you know, yeah. and the, the best way to pursue that is to buy, try to find things that are similar in nature, whether mm -hmm. it be how it's discovered or the, the actual band or bands that are similar to that band or whatever it is. And, and I think that, you know, that's why all these stations exist. And that's why, yeah. you know, oh, people yeah. entering our stage of life are like, can you believe that you two's on the oldie station, yeah. you know? And it's because there's th that music will always live on, you know, with that generation. Yeah. Um, and so for our generation, for this sort of like Gen X uh, generation here, that 91 was a seminal year that set the tone for whichever avenue of that you would follow, whether it would be the grunge or whether it would be Red Hot Chili Peppers or whether it would be U2 and R.E.M. or whether it would be Meatloaf for whatever it was like you could find it in uh in that time and uh and it was defining yeah big time it was it was it was one of those things where you gotta think about it because i was 13 obviously in uh uh 19 was it, that's not obvious <laughs> obviously obviously yeah. to math uh, <laughs> uh, it was, but it was you 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 think about it and you think about that that yeah, like you're coming of age right when music is changing right and all you hear before that is something that can be played in the back background in a car or something like that. And then mm -hmm. you, you're, you're coming of age is when this Titanic shift in music happens. And then suddenly after that, everyone's wearing plaid. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, and wearing, wearing flannels and have a wearing shorts with flannels, you know, it's, a, it's just what the most, one of the most comfortable fads ever, you know, really <laughs> nice to be. And, you know, yeah. And and to bring that back to what we were talking about earlier, the people that were, you know, five, ten years older than you, your 13-year-old in that era were rejecting that music because they were loving, you know, the 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 big hair bands oh, and yeah. the synthesizing mm -hmm. and all of that from the 80s. And we're referring to this year, 1991, similar to what we were talking earlier about the garbage in the late 90s and early 2000s you know? yeah, yeah so exactly. all these things are so cyclical by these generations who look to those formative years when they're involved in music or at least they did for those several generations when music was something that you tried to seek out in your youth and you know feel well yeah. um well most of grunge was garbage and what most of what good grunge spawned particularly bands like bush and live were garbage yeah. But the I, I I I am guilty of rejecting Nirvana when it came out. Oh, me too. And I appreciate them a hell of a lot more now than I did then. Oh, me um, too. But at the time, I was listening. I of the grunge. I thought always thought Pearl Jam was the better band. Mm -hmm. And but Pearl Jam is what yeah. you're talking about. You know, the only crap emerges. It's like you start with Nirvana, who I agree. I also kind of rejected them contemporaneously, but mm -hmm. then later went back and was and developed a greater appreciation for them and mainly their contribution to music. And you start seeing that opening up the doors for the, some of those other bands that do end up coming out of like the Northwest that aren't necessarily just like rip off garbage bands like um, Bush. Although I don't know that I put Live in that category. I think they were like more, way more in the mainstream like pop well they were more um, poppy rock, yeah, they, yeah rock and then i don't know that i could draw a straight line from nirvana to, to them i think that was, they're more in lines of, what was their hit song mm -hmm. lightning crashes was that? yeah lightning thrashes and mm -hmm. copper um and, uh, dolphins cry like that. yeah yeah dolphins cry that was the name of the song it's about yeah. flipper yeah. <laughs> yes he wrote it oh he was watching the tv show flipper yes <laughs> <laughs> I want to hear a song yeah, about Gentle Ben. That's the one I really want to hear. No yeah. Ben. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and 
also I would argue that there's still an you know Nirvana still influences a lot of music that's made yeah. today, um, yeah. and the idea that you know it was taking sort of the edginess of rock and roll um, and some of the like darkness of like metal, mm-hmm. and it was combining that with like almost a more casual approach to it through both the styling and whatnot and also the kind of like i don't give a fuck attitude um i i considered i can't remember if it was uh 92 or 93 as a year because i feel like the nirvana's unplugged album was um (laughs) something that was like on that path yeah i think oh big damn um to really changing the way that we desired to consume music and from you know for the next rest of that decade um those unplugged albums um were consistently you know oh, number one records yeah and some of the best uh performances of a lot of artists i, I loved rem's unplugged one of my favorites um ten thousand maniacs unplugged is one of my all-time favorites. oh albums. i remember that too rocks yeah. from start to finish yeah. um rod stewart's um was really good oh yeah um, with ron wood for the first time in like 20 plus years at yeah that point, i think and, and then uh, and, um, and also Counting Crows Unplugged is like my favorite versions of uh, of almost oh, all their songs. Did they do an Unplugged? An actual MTV Unplugged? Oh, no, I'm sorry. It was uh, Storytellers. Oh, yeah. Well, same. Yeah, VH1 just well, did their own. Well, yeah. the, I never well, said Pat, uh, did you mention your your band, the uh, Ten Thousand Maniacs? Did they did they do? Did yeah, I did. I, oh, did you? Yeah. Okay. I I, I, I was saying that that's like <laughs> one, one of my favorite um, Unplugged albums. Yeah, because because I, I, the night their cover of the Bruce Springsteen song, yeah, uh, which was probably were they doing Patty Smith, her version of it, or were they trying to do channeling Bruce Springsteen? Probably. I was I always thought I was wondering about. Yeah, that. I think it it's sound, probably it closer to Patty Smith. Like Patty Smith. Yeah, yeah, but in the I mean, it also is it's like again, I mean, it's a recording live recording in a room where they're all you know playing acoustic instruments and it has the a small crowd and mm-hmm. it was a big deal um yeah. I, I, you know bill flanagan produced those he actually um introduced the band to the beginning and if you ever listen to that album like his introduction of it is kind of like part of the tracks that you hear in your head whenever you hear about it in the future and then you know he of course the great artist or a uh, writer that wrote um at the end of the world about you too mm-hmm. and um had his hand in all those sorts of uh, productions of storytellers and unplugged on mtv oh cool well, when, you think about it, when you think about it you know 91 you uh, two completely changes direction and they go with Octane Baby, which once again, another album from 91 that I completely rejected at the time. And now oh, I wow. appreciate big time. And uh, uh, I think that there's just like, we it, and, it, and Pat, you make a good point. It's hard not to get pulled into nostalgia thinking like, this is the music that I grew up with. Therefore it is the only correct music. Um, I, I have been guilty of that. And I, I, uh, Morty, wasn't your favorite band? Uh, wasn't your favorite band Slaughter in 1991? Though no, it was not. Wasn't <laughs> no, no. Well, they 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 did play our hometown around that time, Joe. Yeah, and Winger. He loved Winger. He was a big no, Winger fan. I was a. Uh, I I what did I like in '91? I don't. I'm trying to remember. I, I was listening well, to. Like, I I was listening to in '91. I was listening to a lot of Paul McCartney, uh, and oh. that never changed. Um, no. And, and then you know, Off the Ground came out in '93, and you know. It's still my favorite Paul McCartney album. <laughs> we can actually talk about how great the Beatles are right now. This is a rare opportunity for all three of us. Oh, that's right. Yeah. 
That's right. <laughs> if, unless, wait. Pat size. Oh, no. <laughs> we don't have another one, do we? Um, we don't need to go down this road, you know, in this podcast, but I, I, uh, re- I, I rejected the Beatles when I learned about them. And, uh, I, I respect them for their contribution to music. I never listened to them. I, I have no interest in like popping on an, al- an old album and listening to, it's just yeah. not part of like my musical I do. Your, I do remember oh, you almost killing one of our friends for, uh, re- excessive, uh, repeats of Oh, Bloody, Oh, Blah, Da in the car I'm, especially, that, I think. I'm yeah. especially offended by that song Joe <laughs> <laughs> you and John Lennon both yes John Lennon hated that song and rightfully uh, that and Maxwell's Silver Hammer yes um, oh I hate that song too yeah yes yeah well so I mean yeah, we kind of all took different approaches and it's kind of actually a, a, a you know Magnus is not going to listen to this but this this one's benefited from him not uh, being here because this is <laughs> We've got we we've we've been allowed to to uh, speak freely. About, no, actually, okay, well, oh Max, my gosh, I believe Matt, uh, Magnus told me, or I think he mentioned his yeah. year is going to be like fifty eight through fifty nine. So kind of a different approach too, not yeah. a whole year in the sense of like a calendar year. And that would have been an interesting. I'd like to hear his thoughts on that. Obviously, we'll probably hear well, it privately. But, um, um, Joe, your pop, your post uh, podcast research is to look up look up year fifty eight and fifty nine and see what the hell happened. <laughs> and I'll just fill in. Well, I know some things. What was it? Fifty nine is when Elvis joined the army, for instance. Mm. Well, you, you, so, know why, nice. you know why fifty nine is important is that is it's the fifty nine Les Paul came out, and that is the defining guitar of the rock and roll era. <clears throat> wow. I I have not heard that song. Ooh. No, the, the 59 version of a Les Paul guitar. Les Paul. Oh, the Les Paul. I think yeah. you said 59 Les Paulo. I'm like, what the <laughs> hell is that? I've never heard of that. <laughs> that makes sense. That's, oh. a good, that's a good call, too. <laughs> we always stick the landing on this show. We have, yeah, always, we do. We're, we're just trying to wrap things up, and we have Joe misunderstanding my Les Paul talk. It's just that deep music nerding talk is what deep, i would call it deep deep well that's what podcasts are for we love to go off the rails here at the end <laughs> yes exactly all right well uh thank you all for joining us the latest uh gen x music show um we'll be back soon um and uh, mm-hmm. uh we'll uh yeah be back